This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. Rock. Paper. Pixels. I am Patrick Avioli, and welcome to Rock Paper Pixels. The focus of this podcast is to explore how our need to communicate created this new economy. During the time of this podcast, we have focused on education, information, entertainment, promotion, and the arts. Today, we're going back to the world of promotion and marketing, and our guest today is the founder and principal user experience researcher of First Insights. He has led highly focused teams of qualitative and user experience researchers during usability testing focus groups, ethnographic research, heuristic evaluations, and competitive analysis engagements. Manage multiple aspects of client relationships, including oversight of budgets, timelines, and resource allocation. Guided and educated clients during strategic review process to ensure that research methodologies match project objectives and business goals. Created and oversaw project deliverables, including recruitment screeners, moderators' guides, and detailed summary reports. He has done this for companies such as uh, General Assembly, Blue Marble, DMBNB, Novo, and the earliest days, Digital Interactive. Uh, we're going to talk about that where I first met. Uh, as a little child he was when I first met him because I knew his father before I knew him. That's how old I am. And welcome today, my guest, Lon Taylor. Hey, Lonnie. Thank you. Thanks uh, so much, Pat, for having me out to this beautiful campus. Yes, it, it is. It is a pleasure to, uh, to catch up given our, our many-year history of digital marketing, um, having seen sort of the birth of yes. – of when all this started it was frightening to right today it really has changed a lot and um i'm eager to to chat about our both of our experiences yeah. and um you know and answer some questions about uh you know what was going on back then uh, what is going on now uh because there are constant changes which makes it exciting for for both of us you're not you're not selling insurance in a cubicle and we're going to talk about that. But the title of the topic today, the title of today's show is Birth and Growth of UX. Uh, and it's, I say what a long, strange trip it's been. I'm not a deadhead. But I, I love the line. And it's really, really true, especially in our time. What we saw from the earliest days of this, explaining what it was to people and then having to sell them and then having to build it. Today, when these kids walk around head down into poles, into each other, into walls, because they're so sucked in by the UX, it really is the technology, but it's the use of the technology. It is. And I think that, you know, when we started doing this type of work back in the 90s and, you know, both of us had uh, – experience in the marketing, the advertising, the promotional world. Sure, the analog um, world. You know, I think that one of the things uh, back when we started that, that, that I could see, and I know you could see it uh, probably before me, is that, you know, I was doing traditional catalog marketing. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you had the cost of printing, let's say, a 176-page catalog, and then all of a sudden computers started having <laughs> CD players where you could put a bunch of information on a CD and send that out. For, for a dollar fifty, yeah, for a dollar fifty, when the catalog cost you know twelve or thirteen dollars to print, each. plus mailing, plus, plus mailing. everything you can think of because so of weight. You, we started, we both started to see, uh, you know, in the mid nineties when we were working together, that there was going to be a shift. I think both of us knew that it wasn't going to happen overnight no. because the adaptation of the technology, as with most technologies, sure. is pretty slow. And even when we started, we we still didn't see the internet necessarily no, no. as where everything was going no. to lead. It was too slow. Correct. Do you remember sitting in my den, me, you, and Mark, waiting for AOL to go on so that we could do something? Uh, we had to talk to somebody somewhere, whatever it was. But I remember just getting all excited when we heard, doo -doo 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 -doo, and it came. And now the instantaneous driving in your car with one thumb talking to someone in uh, the Ukraine 
and nailing a business proposal down at the same time you're drinking a chai latte, whatever it is, it is so ease of use today. It, it really is. And I think but that's that, the key of UX. We yeah. Talk about that. And then what, you know, I think what we got to witness, um, oh both, both looking at it and then doing the actual work as well, was that um, you, even in the early days, you had to pay attention to some type of interface and structure, whether yep. it was for a CD-ROM. We did, we worked on a great project for a Tommy Hilfiger sure where did. there was a touchscreen kiosk. Unheard of. Installed in maybe I think fifty or sixty. Fifty Macy's, Macy's the across the country. And the one of the big issues that they had with that project was that no one thought to touch the screen. Right. Um, yeah, good point because it wasn't normal. It was too early. I think we actually early. had a sign on it to touch. We, well, I remember going to an actual Macy's and standing yes, there for four yes, hours yeah. and waiting for someone to touch it and finally <laughs> grabbing a few people and say, what if you touch this? And they touched it. And they, they were like, like oh, oh my God. It. Because again, realize at the time and you no know, one knew it. No one thought of it. But yeah. the, even the ATM machine. You couldn't exactly. touch the screen. <laughs> you had exactly. to press the buttons. So, so this shift has taken a while, and I think that throughout, um, you know, the past twenty plus years, uh, we've gotten to see the attention paid more and more to you know the UX, the user experience of an interface, to make it easy for people to understand. Um, and as as my current role as a UX researcher, we we research with all age groups. And it doesn't matter. If the interface is difficult, it yeah. won't matter that yeah. it's a 20-year-old who's technology yeah. savvy. If they don't see it, they don't see it, um, well, as, as well as older people as well. So you you really do have to pay attention to the user experience, and that is And the user base. Right, it's, and, right, and who's using it yeah. as well. I agree. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not going to age now at all. I really think age, and I'm an example of this because I'm 62. I had a meeting on campus yesterday. I'm helping out a publication on campus. A friend of mine, a colleague, faculty member, is the advisor at the moment. And the youngin, the the student who's putting this all together, uh, bizarrely, I never met the person before, right? She comes from my hometown and went to my high school. And I was like, this is really weird. She's 20, I'm 62. She wants to know, but can't we please do a printed version of the magazine? And I'm like, why? Because she has this user experience of sitting down with something and thumbing through it. But also I think she wants to show grandma and grandpa, which is wonderful. It's tactile. But I, I think the term user experience evolved since we started. It didn't exist we were drawing things out, if you remember, on a ledger pad with multicolored magic markers to show how the piece should be built. We didn't have uh, flow charts. We didn't really have user experience flow. And that's all evolved as we've been in this field and as you've been in it. The researching part that you talk about, I think, is one of the things that people skip over and give a big peshaw to. Like, that's not really important. That is the most bizarre thought when it's it's unbelievable that after all of this time, and let's back it up, all of this time, Uber, Twitter, Facebook, Google, there are no products. Nothing is analog. They are leading the world in economies. All they are is user experience research. That's all they are. Nope. But we can't seem to bring that to people outside of that area for them to easily understand. They look at Google and they go, we want to be like Google. Dude, it's user research. That's all they do. It's all they yeah. care about. Well, look, the, the, the simplicity right. of, and the ease of use of something, it while it looks easy, um, is tremendous a lot of, work a lot of research yeah. usually goes into that. So Steve um, Krug? So Steve, Don't make me think. Steve Krug is, is is someone who I've met on several occasions. He's a great. I hate he's you. A great, he's a great speaker. He wrote a great book. Yeah. Um, and you know, back when I started uh, doing research, um, it was probably about 1999. So I was at working for a big um, ad agency, and I was a project manager. So building some big websites for Cadillac, for Con Edison 
for Procter and Gamble. These um, are huge names for wow. Continental Airlines, and then we built the started building the Orbitz website uh, at its from zero, and that's when I started the shift. I was asked by the general manager at the time. The agency got you know I was the fifteenth employee. We got up to about four hundred. Is this Blue Marble? Coast. This was Blue Marble. It had changed wow. to Novo Interactive, yeah. and then changed again. Ultimately, it's now part of. Leo Burnett, which is under the publicist banner. So the clients were great. And I think that one of the things that we saw was an open-mindedness. Um, but the way that I got into the research was yeah. uh, our general manager asked myself and one of my colleagues at the time, who I'm still great friends with, he, he said, you know, you guys seem to know how to do a whole bunch of different things. Because it wasn't, it didn't exist, right? I'd love to have you start a research department. And, you know, the f funny thing was at first it was more of quantitative research, measuring traffic to a website, right. measuring banner ads, measuring boosts of perceptions for a brand that was online. Is this before Google Analytics? This was, yes. This was before okay. Google Analytics. So you had no KPIs. And you had nothing. None you of were, it. How were you it. doing it then? So PC Meter, oh, which yeah. is yeah. now oh whatever God. versions of that are now owned by Nielsen. Oh, that hurt. Was measuring. That hurt. Was it, measuring website traffic. Wow, well, it kicked so, a cell in my head to go, wait a minute. Yeah. Nope. Well, they were, oh right, my they were God. right here on Long Island. Uh, they, this, they, were, they were part of NPD Research, which is, I believe, in Port Washington. Yes. So they got they were spun out of that. Um, so that's what we were doing. And you know, I'm admittedly so not a numbers guy. And we started figuring out that we might be able to do some focus groups. We had heard about this thing called usability testing. And I'll give great Jacob credit Nielsen. to to Jacob Nielsen, to Jared Spool. To Just hold on one second. We have not had a conversation or seen each other in over 20 years. <laughs> we are naming the same exact people who influence same our work today. Be, and we have not spoken, really, in 20 years. Really, it had to be the late 90s, right? The last uh, time yes, I spoke to you. Yes. So 20 years later, you and I are talking about the same exact people as being touchstones, as driving this whole industry. It's freaky. I mean, it really the, the yeah. continuity of thought with distance is bizarre, and it just does prove the point. These are I, I hate Jacob Nielsen. I'll say it twelve <laughs> times. Uh, any guy who disadvocated or fought against putting graphics on a website and then had huge pictures of himself on it on the bottom, that I was kind of like, really, Jacob? But Don Newman, I believe it's Don Newman, yes, his partner, partner yes. he's a whole other animal. They, you know, that's look, a brilliant, I'll, I'll brilliant I'll give person. them credit um, because I think, uh, oh, I, think he, I think he does a great job of promoting the industry. And yes, yes. you can disagree with certain, certain elements of, of what he around. does. Um, the other guy I want to mention is Jeff Rubin, who wrote yeah. a great book called the, the, the Usability Handbook or the Handbook of Usability that's Testing. Good. No, I don't know that one. And he, I met him early on. He was nice enough to answer a whole bunch of questions in our offices in New York, again, back in 1999. And we got his book. He signed the book. And then we and he was on his way to retiring um, at that point. But these guys had come up in the 60s yeah. doing testing for yeah. government projects, sure. government software. Like Ivan um, Sutherland, those and, kind of people who were correct. behind WorldWin and those things. And they saw that their software usability testing for the government could be transitioned into Absolutely. The, the, the web. So we, my, this myself, is ARPANET my becoming internet. Correct. Same model. What am I, you know, I'm developing ARPA or DARPA and yada, yada, yada. Now, I just did a Seinfeld. And you, you just yada, yada, yada over the best part. No, I mentioned the bisque. Uh, that'll be edited. Uh, but these, it's the same pattern. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, I'll, oh God, we got to watch our time. Yeah, on. so so I'll tell. So I think that you know one one of the things we started talking about yeah, was the um, <clears throat> the aversion to potentially doing research. And Absolutely. I'll you know I'll tell you one just quick story. So when we were um, working on uh, the Orbits website, uh, you know, again back in the day. Uh, we, myself, my old colleagues were in charge of doing usability testing every couple of weeks as the site was being built. And the creative right. director, oh. 
who <laughs> was leading the site, who will not, who will go nameless, yes, didn't want to do this because this was his creative idea. It would he challenge. Had very, he had very specific ideas. He didn't want to watch the usability testing. Didn't want to participate no. in it. They call it a, a, a tissue test. You yeah. know that now because people cry right when their ideas don't work. And yet we were getting feedback that was so tremendously helpful, it's valuable that it, cha- it changed the direction of what the Orbitz site became. Now this was a one-year build, and we tested it nonstop. And when also so ultimately he relented. He was sort of read the riot act by a couple of different people. And when Orbitz launched, it became the most successful travel site. It was a tremendously successful site. They they sold something, you know, tens of millions of dollars of tickets during the first couple of weeks. People thought it was amazing because you could see all the different airlines on there because all the airlines had invested. So the point of the story is that once you see the value of the testing and and sit in person and watch some of these one-on-one interviews, or now there's a lot of remote testing as well, once you watch that remotely and see, you know, five, six, seven, eight users go through what you've designed yeah, sure. and get their feedback, you start to see patterns, even with a small amount of people. And that is a game changer. And that's hopefully for the creatives. It's for the creatives. And I think that, so I think that it's. I'm talking it's about being, client yeah, and both agency. Client and internal people. And yeah. I think that, you know, what I've seen in, in, in business, having been in you know, out in business with First Insights for the past 15 years is that a lot of the bigger ad agencies have brought research in-house because they want to do it more often and they see the value of it so they have a full-time staff to do this. What a slow curve, though. It's it's taken a while. But once people see it and they see it in person, the value is just they, they have a couple of aha moments and they're sold. Great term. That's right. Hold on. I want to reintroduce you because we've been talking now for 15 minutes. Today, I was joking around, he is the UX researcher to the stars, Lon Taylor. I don't know if he likes that or not. I'm just joking around. When you know someone for over 25 years, you get to joke around with them a lot more. That has been a great experience for me. Uh, Lonnie and I were talking about all of the Mishbuka that we had together in 1995 and who they are today. And I'm hoping to get Lawrence on this show. I'm hoping to get Janice. I know I'll get Joe because uh, you can't keep him quiet. And I'll get Richie as well to talk about their experiences. Lon Taylor, founder and owner of First Insights. Today is my guest. We're talking about UX research, its value, and how it is finally, after 20 years, Someone's starting to really listen to it. And I just want to jump creative. That was a great story about Orbitz. That was a great story. The creative directors must feel so challenged by research. You think so? Yes or no? They got to because... You know, it could be a generational thing. I think that... Most of the younger creative directors now will roll with they, it. Re- they realize that the, some of these major projects, um, where it's going to be a six-month build of a, a website or an app, that usability testing is just built in, and that is great. That's been a shift, I would say, that's happened over the past ten years. Yeah, sure. Where these projects are including one or two rounds of user testing during the project life cycle because one of the things and you know what's the proportion of budget so i'm glad you asked that's a great question and i was just gonna sort of give jacob nielsen his 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 props um, because he advocates and and we do as well that you spend about 10 percent of your total Budget. budget on doing some research um and that seems low it's it seems low, but on a big project, it, it adds up. Okay. And the the well, I'm talking about just yeah. percentage, not dollars. Yeah, about ten about ten percent prior so, to the start or during the course. I know the during whole, the course of the whole, the whole thing. Out. Yeah. So you know, look, if you take a round number, if you, you know, if you're building a million dollar project, yeah, it's a hundred thousand know, dollar budget. Hundred thousand dollars of research. Good night. Will and and this is <laughs> see this is where I think the changes happen because you know when you have numbers crunchers in the background as well. Seeing what happens when you don't do user testing and you launch something and then you have to spend another million dollars, those numbers add up pretty quickly for, you know, for America's largest companies. And they've seen, they've seen the value of reduced spend 
on fixes post launch. Yes. Yes. They've seen increased customer acquisition. They've seen increased scores as far as customer retention. So the numbers back up the qualitative research. At the end of the day, when you're not, like you said, spending on the real. So in a proposal that your company does, will you cite case studies of A to B, so to speak? Here's an example of a site that was not uh, built out with usability testing and research prior. Here are the redos. Here's the cost factors. And can you associate, not here, but in that meeting, names with them? You know, they don't believe, very rarely do people believe what you're saying unless there's a hard connection, right? I think that what we try to do is have people who have any skepticism at all call our references. Okay. And that's the easiest way to do it because better than I can, yes, our clients can represent to potential clients, you know, how they saved money, how they boosted yeah. acquisition, how they uh, built retention over yeah. many years and, and boosted sort of the long-term value of a customer. So we're going to segue for just one second. These are great, great points. And uh, it's... You're teaching in the marketplace. You're teaching and probably one of the most difficult students that could exist. People who are successful possibly within their field. Now you're telling them you've done wonderful, you've done great. Uh, You have to do it a little different now. So that must be the toughest sell in the world, number one. Two, you have backup because you can show numbers. Have you ever, what skill sets do you think are the most important? Uh, it's kind of a leading question because you know we know the answer to this. But, like, you know, you're you're a business person, you're a salesperson, you're a uh, marketing person. But have you found that having to do this research, having to put it together, do you see psychology heavily, sociology, these kind of things heavily invested in here? We do. I think that, you know, <coughs> now that... Now that um, UX research is a more widely known field, much more accepted than it was even 10 years ago, there's a couple of things to answer your questions. Number one, by the time someone gets in touch with us, they already feel like they need us. So that's a good thing. (laughs) That makes it easy. Um, So we don't have to do a lot of upselling and convincing most of the time. Now this we, is like pest control. We just exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so we we are getting calls from people who are smart. They know that they need to do this either at the start of a project or they've just been assigned to a project that failed and they don't want to be Ooh. the ones that had it fail twice. Yeah. So there is some selling to doing this, and I really we, don't want to use the word sell so it, much. Well, I think it, it's a realization. It is. I mean, we, and we've always, since I started this company, we, I always guarantee our work. Really? And that's, it just goes without saying, and if someone wants the challenge, why should we be doing this? I'll say, well, I'll guarantee 100% of the work. If we don't find any bugs or any issues with your interface, and nothing, and you, you tell us your objectives, and if those aren't boosted after you fix what we found, then if you don't see that, you don't have to pass. Really? Yes. Because I'm so confident that we'll find issues. Well, that, of course. That, the, that all the people watching, and again, when we do this either at a testing facility or remotely, I want all the stakeholders. A lot of times it's an ad agency, a digital ad agency, sure. and their client. I want sure. everybody watching. They have to. Because that helps convince people um, it helps of, what's going, of what's going on. It also sure. ends, one of the things that's great about the type of usability testing that we do, and also some of the other research that we do, is that it ends debates and arguments between clients, whether they're internal, external, agency, Because it's factual. And you see it with your own eyes. Yeah. It, it's a game changer. So um, I think you taught you asked a question about the skill set of yes. maybe some of the people who are doing this type of work. I think that there are a lot of people that have a psychology background, um, a human factors yeah. background. There's a lot of people who are UX designers who kind of fell into doing research as well because maybe they were internal, 
They didn't have the budget. They didn't have the yes. time. So they just sort of voluntarily started doing research. They morphed. And they were like, this is fun. This is interesting. And so myself and my team all have a background in UX design as well. And I think that that helps us yes. to validate that the we've been there. We've been yeah. there managing yeah. projects. So we know how to fix things and how to turn on a dime once you get done with the research end of it. Absolutely. Uh, uh, one of the things I want to talk about uh, why did my brain just kick off? Uh, the guy who runs IDEO, David Kelly. David Kelly at Stanford at D School, right? Uh, you know, the fact that you're shaking your head, <laughs> I still swear to God, I think there's a continuum with the five or six of us who shared those days that we don't talk, but like we're in the same room at some point in time. Just, oh yeah, I saw Lon last week. No, you didn't, Pat. <laughs> But, you know, we're thinking along the same lines 20 years later. David Kelly, CEO of IDEO, uh, founder of D-School at Stanford. When he puts together a group, a cohort, it is usually one UX designer, a sociologist, a person from the specific project area, whatever it is, and then whatever else makes up the rest, uh, the computer scientists, for example. That's his cohort. To work with, and that's what you're talking about. Uh, I have been trying to do that for 25 years, and I'm going to sound like a real academic now. You ready? In my second book, uh, when I was doing the research for it, to come across his actual process and everything, going, okay, I'm not completely crazy. Here is a highly regarded individual, and he is doing the same exact model. So. Yes, there are five different people, but every one of those five needs to have a portion of what the other one has. So if you're a UX designer, you should have some understanding of psychology, but not the 80%, just a bit. You're a computer, you're a UX person, designer, you need to understand coding and programming so you can talk. And this is obvious. This isn't uh, an amazing, uh, oh my God, yes, what a great idea. But it always has been siloed, and education is siloed. And that, to me, is what Kelly does wonderfully, and I couldn't advocate more. Uh, and I think industry is, has lost the silo. Do you think they have, Lon? Or are they really still, I do this, and that's what I do? You know, I think that one of the things that we talk about a lot is empathy. And it's a word that gets floated out there a tremendous amount because it really is important. Yes. And I think that the situations that I've been in where there's empathy between coworkers and understanding between an agency and a client, mm. that's when you get the best results. Because Success. everybody has respect. Yes. And they might not be able to pro you know, UX designer might not be able to program well, but at least they have respect for what that person's skill set is, and they'll ask a couple of questions, as we do when we're writing recommendations from yeah. a report. Yeah. You know, I'm not a programmer. I don't know how to program anything, but yeah. at least I know how to word a recommendation to say, here's a suggestion. If you guys can do this, and then we check in with the programmer. Can they right. do that? Is it within how the budget? How much steps? How budget, much time, time does it, does sure. it take? So, you know, not everything, not everything work, can work perfectly, but I think when you come from a position of empathy and people respect each other's job titles, you get, that's what, that's the glue that sort of brings people together. Yes. And the organizations that are doing that are moving faster than the organizations that have a siloed, and if they're uh, hiring, siloed process if they're or siloed jobs. That yes. Way. That's one of the key things because I've been in meetings, uh, I'm not going to be specific with names, but I've been at, with groups that I've worked in that are in New York City. Uh, I volunteered my time. I've done everything I can to help them. At the end of the day, they're still in the world of analog. And these are huge, huge names. And anybody who comes in with a truly digital perspective is kind of seen as, you know, a leper. Or So I'm saying the, the silo becomes harder and harder. Uh, what is it? Nishi has said the animals get nastier the smaller the water hole gets, <laughs> and and that's 
Yeah, it's exactly what's going on. So the growth issue and empathy, you know, we're not talking about spooning or cuddling. We're talking, although maybe if it's a good day. What we're talking about is having an understanding of the, the requirements of the other person's job and how it fits your job. You can't say I want to have a full screen animation on the homepage when it loads and the programmer's going to go, that will never load. And you can't just demand it as a creative. So you work together to figure ways out. Which is why I think we have the world of 2D flat design today. You understand my point with that? Like, the world of design changes because of the barriers of technology. Because you can't all have full D, 3D motion going at one time. Today you can a lot more than ever. But this understanding of the client won't get what they want. It's not going to work correctly. We're going to drive the programmer crazy with compression because it may work five times today, but then the server's going to blow up. There are so many issues here. It's not paper. Yeah. Well, it, look, it, it's, you know, our, our discussion is around UX and it's user experience. And if it's bad. And the user is, again, the user is at the center or should be at the center um, at all times. Of, of any company objectives. Um, the same with you know CX customer experience. Uh, it's all about understanding your customers, how they use an interface, how that what they do in their daily lives comes into play now even more as well because everyone is carrying a phone that's twenty times more powerful than any computer that we used even fifteen years ago. Not even yet. So the the power of mobile is changing research yet again yes and it because people can just go on their phone shop get work done do a myriad of different things studying and understanding the whole customer experience and things like um you know customer journeys and like shopping processes all those things come into play and to talk about the companies that are doing this well yeah, yeah. are doing well because they're yes. paying attention to the customer experience, the user experience of their interface. Uh, they're paying attention to th how customers provide feedback, not directly to them most of the time, no. but posting something on Instagram. Absolutely. So everything keeps changing, and that's, to me, one of the excitements of the field that we're in. Um, because there's something new that comes out every year that changes everything, and we change our research methodology. It's like parenting, slightly. but it all goes back. It is. It all goes back to the user experience and the customer experience and the interaction with your brand or your company or your products, and that's where folks who are centered there will be successful. Will be successful and do well. Well, Jeff Raskin, who again in one of my books I use this quote over and over, the interface is the product today. And it's a product in many, not just the product anymore. It's, God forbid, uh, you're stuck on the road. You want to be able to, right? I, I need someone to come and get me, help me, this and that. You know, there is a horrible situation going on. You know, not to be funny, uh, Arab Spring, right? They were tweeting out what was going on on a daily basis. Uh, when... Osama bin Laden was killed. Do you know that there was the neighbor that was tweeting out the steps by steps of what he was hearing? Do you know? Have you seen that I've sequence? Not heard that. It's a sequence of tweets, large helicopters overhead. Something must be going on. This is bizarre that this is recorded by individuals. Now, in, I'm hoping in the upcoming weeks to have. Uh, the chair of the photojournalism department at Rochester Institute of Technology. He's a four-time Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist. And our topic that day is going to be fake news. Now, but we're going to talk about the integrity of uh, citizen journalism. And we're going to talk about how this has broken certain things open. I just had Ryan Seslow on this, who's a wonderful, I love this guy so much. We talked about the democratization of art about how the galleries and museums are feeling the effect of people being able to post and sell themselves. I kept joking around that, does that mean taste is now going to be Snooky or Big Ange? Is that what was happening? And I'm bringing those things up for a point. Once the user is driving the bus, how dangerous is that? 
You remember Rodney in uh, Easy Money? You know, it's the regular guy look. You know, how, Will, you understand what I'm saying by this? Yep. If the user is driving the bus too much, yeah. does the company ever evolve? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a great point that you bring up. And I think that you, it's, it's, it, it, when you describe it, it's not necessarily being directed by your users. Okay. It's just having respect yeah. for your users. You know, if you're in the clothing business um, and your users want – a small group of users can be very vocal. Yep. And they may want all cra- all kinds of crazy colors, but you have to, you have to take it all yes. and weigh all the different things that come up. So you yeah. can't just cater – to a tiny group of users who want, you know, bright orange, bright mm-hmm. yellow, and then lose, you know, the 80-20 rule still applies. <laughs> 20% of your customers are going to buy 80% of your stuff and be <laughs> the most loyal and the, you know, generate the most revenue for your company in many, many cases. So I think that it's, it's respecting the users, it's listening to them. But you do bring up a point of going too far. Yes. Um, Flock of seagulls. And, yeah, the, 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 you know, the users in certain cases can't direct the company. Um, but Someone's you know, got to drive that bus. Correct. But they have to take in all of the information yeah. and have, you know, I hate to, we're talking very kind of scientific, right? Neither one of us have those degrees, but we're talking kind of scientific in the analysis here. But there is an intu- intuition that old school people of their fields have. And it really comes from going, you know what, listen, I saw this 30 years ago. I know where this this movie ends. So yeah, I'm gonna put out some orange shirts for the fall, but we're not putting the, all the money behind it. Right. And the, and the yeah. smart one goes, this will instigate interest in us. Right. So let's use that to generate more promotion, more marketing, and get our name out there bigger. And that's when you have to know how to spin the plates like they used to do on the Ed Sullivan show. Who's balancing what? It's not easy today because, you know, a six-year-old's driving the car sometimes. Right, right. And, well, that look, that's ultimately one of the values that you get from research. Mm-hmm. Um, you understand your audience. And if you do see certain tipping points, it's going to give you enough information to act on that. Look, you know, and I go back to the clothing analogy is that a lot of these brands have offshoot brands. Mm-hmm. They will buy another company that they see that's more yeah. uh, active with a certain demographic. And so it's still giving you value to make smart decisions. Yes. The more you talk to your users, the better the decision making is going to be. Absolutely. And this is the value of UX. And it, it analog, same value. However, today we're talking digital because of the effects of, and we're going to talk uh, simple product marketing for a second here. Sears, JCPenney, oh my God, Montgomery <laughs> Ward, I think. I don't even know if they're still around. Yeah. The Kmart, all of these places. Yeah. Amazon is gobbling them as fast, not directly, but you know. And, and all those companies that you mentioned were huge innovators Absolutely. at their time. I mean, Sears uh, yeah. and Montgomery Ward started they used to the ship direct to, to direct to sale concept. You know, in, they the, didn't in the late 1800s, That's right. when you could look at a catalog, send the letter and a check, right. and get a product back. And that, a that was that was earth shattering right. at that time. Um, Why don't they keep and up? And they just they could they couldn't they couldn't you think keep they up. Would just... They made bad decisions. They <clears throat> didn't maybe they li- didn't listen to u- their users. They looked at Amazon and said, "Oh yeah, those guys are selling books." <laughs> so, you know, and in the twenty years, in the past twenty years, I mean, oh Amazon God. is a game changer. Um, Big time. You know, we I, I remember doing a pitch with you back That's when right. we worked together for That's someone right. who's. You know, running the yellow pages or the yellow book. That's right. And we looked at it and we were like, these guys are going to be out of business because Yahoo had just launched. Google hadn't even launched yet and we could still see it. We're like, you can look this up on the computer and you don't have to have a giant book next to you. Okay, great. It's all going to move there. And they they didn't get it. Big yellow. They didn't get it. Yeah. Big yellow. We were there at the launch. Billion dollar businesses that have gone 
you know, the way of the, the dodo bird. They're There's, just, they're gone. It's a great site, too, called Dodo Bird, right? <laughs> uh, I, th- I want to reintroduce you one more time. Today we're speaking with Lon Taylor, founder of First Insights, UX research company located primarily in Chicago, but also in Brooklyn. Uh, and he's an old friend of mine from over 25 years. And again, we have not spoken in 20 of those 25 years. But we are saying for each other, word for word, the same uh, gospel of UX design with the same disciples, Jacob Nielsen, Steve Krug, uh, Don Newman. These are the peeps who made it really work. Uh, we've ta- So far today, we've talked about how you have to listen to your user you don't have to live by their words. You have to use them as a major part of the equation. Lon's job and business and focus is on creating that research in a quantitative and qualitative manner and presenting it to companies as a service. And that's what he buys and sells, so to speak, for you. Uh, one of the things I want to ask you is, with something as global as UX... How, for example, Scandinavia, Germany, Australia, U.S., right? You have this tremendous different cultural structure. Is it very tough to launch a global app or site that will work best or work well in these different communities, worlds? Have you ever had that experience? That's a great question, Pat. And we have been fortunate to work on two or three big global branding uh, redos. Um, and it's, it is challenging, but it's, not, it's certainly not impossible. And it comes out of, again, a, a core respect for the users, both how, how they use something. So meaning... Can they get from page A to page B? Yeah. To can they see the logo? Can yes. they use the functionality to accomplish a, an e-commerce task? But then it's also cultural. Um, there are different colors in different cultures that have different <laughs> meaning. Connotation. So you have to be aware of all this, and we've we've certainly come across that. We just recently did uh, in the past year a project that was for a rheumatoid arthritis mobile app and what we did was the client was interested in looking at people who had rheumatoid arthritis in the US in Canada and in England all three have different healthcare systems that treat people differently in terms of the treatments in terms of the insurance regulations and a variety of issues but Again, so we had to be aware of this, but our job was essentially to test the app in these three different cultures. And what we found was very similar feedback in all three cultures. We only tested it in English, obviously, um, and it was great. It, what it did was it proved, and we tested with both with rheumatoid arthritis patients and with uh, rheumatologists, yeah. so physicians and rheumatoid arthritis nurses. And there were some subtle differences from the doctors and the nurses in Canada and in England because they have more, a little bit more leeway. Yeah. And, but all were enthusiastic about many elements of the app. There were certainly some usability issues that we came across, but culturally, it was a great exercise. We've also done things where we rebranded a, an actual brand yeah. for a company that makes postage meters. So they're in a little bit of an old school business um, that's shifting. And they're, they're working with that shift to buy different companies, make different investments. So the project that we did with them was here's a home page and a secondary page. And we did remote testing around the world, and this was in different languages. So we did Germany, Brazil, uh, Singapore, wow. um, Japan. And I brought in some team members who could speak the appropriate right. languages. And what we did was we showed people, you know, three different versions of a homepage, three different versions of a secondary page. That must have been pure and, confusion. And it was unbranded. So people didn't know who the brand was. And we were trying to get people, you would ask questions such as, who do you think is behind the research? Just to see what people would think to see if they associated the visuals. Yeah. 
and the headlines Are they with it? the brand yeah, that we were yeah, representing. Sure. So yeah, you can you can test things, you can do research internationally because a lot of these brands are global brands, yeah. but you still have to be aware and you will find cultural differences, you'll find slight differences in the way people use things. Now, I'm gonna tell you a, a very quick story on a, a pure, simple, analog design example of that. I had four students who were graduating mid-year in the IMA program before they closed it. Uh, they were four Asian students graduating the IMA program and to not have anybody arguing, I used to design the cards. And I kept it dirt simple. If there were four, the main design element was the number. And their names listed, IMA graduate program, simple as could be, clean aesthetic. So again, four Asians. So I designed the card, the show's coming up, they have like a week before the show, and I present it to David, uh, one of the kind of the lead of the group, you know, the strongest. And big number four, and the card is 95% white. And David's just staring at me. I'm like, what's the matter? He goes, thank you, sir. I go, Dave, what's the matter? Uh, obviously, you don't understand. In Asian culture, the number four represents death. And white represents death. So you have just handed me a card on the biggest day of our lives, and you said death to me twice. And I was like, that is bizarre. Oops. So, yeah, oops. So you're talking about cultural differences yeah. and visual. And the yellow jacket in Korea is supposedly a tremendous insult if you go to someone's home with a bright yellow coat. It's like you don't. There are so many things that subconsciously could influence the user, consciously, right up front. But when you start designing in this space globally, it can be insane. I would imagine it can be a very, very difficult thing to do. Yeah, and I, th I think it goes back to what we spoke of a moment ago, which is empathy and yes. being open-minded, yes. being open-minded to cultural differences it's that we have. make you successful. I know, you know, you told a great example there. I know that the, um, the hotels in Las Vegas hmm. who have a big, you know, from different Asian countries, from different countries all around anyway, they pay careful attention to entranceways, to colors, um, okay. and it, it pays off. Sure. Because it's, it's respect. It's yeah. just respect, and it's learning what to do when you have uh, when you have different cultures. And I think that that's um, when you're doing that online in a digital format. The more you know about a particular culture, the the more you're going to be able to frame the research the the right way and oh bring up things that might not have been obvious to the team at the start of the research. My all right, first of all, all right, we're at 45 minutes, so we got to wrap it, only because people won't listen. The other side of the equation is this. We have to do this again via Zoom and go deeper. And every one of my uh, guests, the 11, this is number 12 episode, it ends this way. I have never said to any of them, okay, we're done. Uh, because as we pull this out more and more, it goes, oh, my God, the amount of information within this area is huge. And I, Lon, I do want to thank you for coming here today. I, it's 104 degrees outside. This is not a joke. It's a heat advisory. We're going on day three. And he came in from Chicago to Brooklyn, Brooklyn to LIU Post Campus, and walked at one point. So I do want to say thank you, but I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't. Pleasure. I couldn't My at 62. Uh, I have a little separate segment that I call Pencils Down. And I, I love naming it that, and I think it's probably the worst and corniest thing I've ever heard. But this is hopefully going to be an educational world for this, the reason why we're putting this out there. Uh, what have we learned today? We learned so far, hopefully, the importance of UX research. The growth of it, we had a bunch of fun going down the nostalgia road here to see what's happened. It is not stopping. The more the user becomes uh, customized, or a custom, excuse me, to using this, it's only going to open this up more to figuring out what needs to be done because as it broadens, the target's going to get more diverse. Uh, convincing clients it exists, that's happening today in a very Darwinian way because those that don't believe don't exist. Uh, need I say, again, Sears, JCPenney, Kmart, 
all of these big bricks and mortar who Amazon is chewing up. And I think they're just having fun by opening up Whole Foods and, and bricks and mortars. The joke was that Bezos said to Alexa, get some Whole Foods. And Alexa said, buy Whole Foods, Jeff. <laughs> and that's how that happened. This will go on more and more. Uh, I do want to thank my guest, Lon Taylor, UX researcher to the stars, uh, founder of First Insights. Lon, I really want to thank you very much for doing this. And before I turn it over to you to kind of hang up, how do they get in touch with you? Or do you want them to get in touch with you? Absolutely. So Please. first of all, thanks again for having me. It's, a, it's always a pleasure to chat and um, talk about UX research, something that I'm passionate about, and I've been fortunate to find something in life that I enjoy doing and can make a living at. Uh, if I, I certainly encourage anyone who's both a student or someone who's listening to this who's not a student to get in touch. I'm always happy to answer questions about what we do, how we do it, uh, the methodologies we use, what things cost. Very uh, interesting so discussion. So feel free to get in touch with me at firstinsights.com. That's the easiest way to touch base. Absolutely. And I, I certainly welcome inquiries and, and just questions. Uh, I think that both Pat and I as – me as a former educator and Pat as a current educator. Maybe <laughs> we, we we like to we like to pass on knowledge. So it's been the, that's been the it, driving force for me for forty years. Always years. fun to always fun to pass on what we've learned. I just want to repeat it. First insights. F I R S T I N S I G H T S. First insights. Dot com. And Lon is also on LinkedIn. I don't think there's that many Lon Taylors. On LinkedIn. There are two or three. Okay, well, we'll, we'll I'm, some... I'm the one based in Chicago. <laughs> uh, Lonnie, it's been tremendous fun, 25 years. Thank you so much for coming out and doing this again. And we will be following this up. You don't even have to come here anymore if you don't want to, but we will be following it up. Take care, kiddo. Thank you very much. Rock. Paper. Pixels. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit WCWP.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.